Hello. Hey, it's Ergo. It is indeed. I'm Kiss. I am Damon. This is the third episode in our very special, very fantastic, very exciting. Is that enough adjectives? That's a sufficient enough word. This is the third episode in our BYP Spotlight blah, series. Blah, blah. For those of you who are still unfamiliar, Black Youth Project is a phenomenal website and platform where uh, young black thinkers from around the world, journalists, educators, artists, are engaging in discourse and creating content to address the black experience from multiple positions. And you should check it out. I think everyone should check it out. Mm. That's what I think. If you're listening, you should definitely, you should check, definitely it check it out. If you're black, you should super you should check it out twice. You should click on it. Two tabs. Close a tab, open up a new tab, give them two clicks. Like a Spotify streaming yep, situation. Yep, yep. That's Let's how run we're those numbers it. up. Yep. We have the wonderful Danielle Roper in the building for this episode. Danielle is a professor at the University of Chicago studying performances of blackness across diaspora, across Latin America. She talks a lot about her work, how she imagines her role in the academy, the things she says yes and the things she says no to, her connections to her father and her mother's work back home in Jamaica, and just like has a lot of really interesting questions that she's trying to find the answers to. So it's cool to get to talk to someone who has that lens, who's doing this work who is still trying to find the answers and doesn't like come in with, well, this is what my argument is, you know? Yeah, definitely a great conversation. And at the end also shared some beautiful work that's happened on the ground with different queer and trans groups in Jamaica. So definitely check that out as well. Shout out to our Jamaican listeners. Yes, we have those. We have a few. Mm -hmm. Shout out to y'all. You can hear the whole BYP Spotlight series on our website as well as on blackyouthproject.com. Just click the BYP and Ergo tab and without further ado, let's get to our conversation with the one, the only, Danielle Roper. Let's get it. That pretzel really pushed you into the <laughs> I need to eat some pretzel before I write my book. I got two go. more left. I mean, <laughs> pretzels are a good snack. We've been talking about this. Actually, oh, really? Lot, yeah. Pretzels is an intergenerational snack. Um, See, pretzels are not really a thing in Jamaica. We don't. I mean, like it's imported, but nobody's in the house. Like My grandma is not like, I need a pretzel. She's not, you know? she's not an Utz. No, no. She's not no, reaching no. for the Utz. No, no. Was is pretzel the, like, a German thing? Bavarian? I don't know. Bavarian. You tell me. (laughs) (laughs) You tell me. What's the like go-to Jamaican snack food that you're reaching for? Banana chips. Ooh, okay. Yeah, but we have this. um, Which are fried though. They are fried. But this one is, um, there's a particular brand called Mm. Chippies that everybody, Mm. I mean, everybody fights for some (laughs) Chippies, you know. I wonder what the parent company is. One of my favorite hobbies is tracing the like. Go ahead and look. I'm, I'm curious too. How's I just had my I just had my mother C H I P P I E S put Jamaica banana chips. I just had my mother bring in like ten bags Let's from see. Jamaica. She was just here in Chicago. It's like a ups- it's a Jamaican company. Mm-hmm. Okay. Their website is bad enough that I think they might not be owned by a multinational. No, company. no, no, they're not. No, no. Oh, you, oh, if you had asked me that, I would have told you. <laughs> you know, no, like yeah, they're, no. they keep it real. No, chippies. no, no, no. <laughs> chippies will not be exporting to the U.S. anytime. I love how you shouted about Soon. while throwing a, a graphic design dig at them. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, it's a really great indicator. No, no, that's another like villain is the hero. The more evil you are, the better your website. Because mm-hmm. you have the money for like top notch, and you have to do the PR spin. <clears throat> exactly. If you like. A company that you have a vague and beautiful website and the things like scroll clean and like move real yeah. and there's like a great Amazon is stock. a really great website. 
that like, thing on, works objectively, perfectly. That's a that's a that's a top notch website. Yeah, the more evil you are, the better your website. Because you mm-hmm. can't get if you have a website. Some some companies are like so so that evil they, you they like can't even <laughs> find. <laughs> <laughs> like there's no there's no contact email there's no inquiry page <laughs> there's no about us <laughs> you gotta be really you gotta be like Coke brothers to be at that level yeah alright should we start this thing let's do it talking about chippies would always make me happy mm. <laughs> and that's where we want you to be it's <laughs> <laughs> a great place <laughs> so uh we're here <clears throat> yes yes we are and we are so excited to be in the studio in conversation with the one and only Danielle Roper <laughs> a little chuckle got me there let's uh let's start where we always start in this time this moment this season however you define time danielle how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world uh the world is treating me very very well yesterday was my birthday happy birthday yeah my birthday's on saturday Huh? My birthday's on Saturday. Really? Oh my yep. God. Yep. Wait, is that the 21st? First, yep. That's my father's birthday. Shout out to Pops. There we go. What you doing for your birthday? Now I'm all up in your business. What What's going on? <laughs> well, we're going to flip this right back yeah. on you though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna what's f- the plan, Dave? My, my, I'm, it's fraught right now. It's mm. up in the air. It's oh, precarious. Okay. okay. I got really, it threw me off yesterday. I got really sad. So I'm be honest. I'm trying to have uh, a psychedelic jam. I'm oh, trying okay. to get a bunch of shrooms. All and, right. and for a few folks who are wanting willing and able uh-huh. you know pass it out like trip Good out together you. and uh all my connects have been been very disappointing so now Aww. my party is kind of like it's teetering so no. so that's where i'm at right if now you're de- if you're dependent on the plug yeah I've, I've i'm down to my fourth plug no <laughs> that's scary that's a scary territory Ooh. <laughs> you have like like one of those like outlet converters on yeah it's like the european joint <laughs> yeah, yeah. three prongs yeah, in different yeah, directions for some reason <laughs> all right what'd you do what'd you do oh birthday? okay so on i mean i'm i'm kind of like a hardcore social person like i'm 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 a, I'm a <laughs> intense people person I, I like to have people i like all kind of people at my house all the time i'm you know Big time extrovert. So last year I had like five different things. Picnic in the park, dinners, this. And then this year I was like, actually, I kind of want a a more low-key celebration. But my friends that they couldn't, my friends were like, something wrong? Are you depressed? Checked your temperature. (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, but what I ended up doing was like, I mean, I invited a couple of people out. I had, I went to, um, it was like an Afrofusion party. Mm -hmm. And it was nice because I'm not good at clubbing, so... Usually my cutoff time is about 11.45. I'm the person that's the first one at the club and the first one to leave because I just, I'm old like that. You know? Bravo. So uh, just like two friends and I went to this party, we danced. I danced Beyond Midnight, which is a record. People wow. took pictures of me and they were like, oh my God, it's after midnight. What are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. I've never been in this position. What do people do at clubs after midnight? You know, that's a, I don't I don't think you want to know. The I know I don't, maybe question. I don't. No, I don't. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, there's a deep history. You could find that out pretty easily. I really could. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of information and data on yeah. what clubs after midnight. At least empirical data. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So There's I'm a lot of people who are empirical data of what happens in club after Hey, I get what you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't sound like that's what happened. No, no, I, I stayed, you know, and then I and then I went home. I had brunch the next morning with my friends. Mm. My friends took me to brunch. It was really nice. And then last night I had like some good friends over, and you know they brought a cake, had some Jamaican food, and it was just like kind of you know it was done by like ten forty five. Everybody went home. And it was perfect. It was just like I saw who I wanted to see. I felt loved. I felt 
like the birthday was recognized. Yeah. You know, it was like a kind of chill vibe, music, drinking, good food in my apartment. It was great. You did it up. There is nothing better than a good time that ends early. <laughs> I see you're a kindred is, spirit. Oh, you see a kindred spirit. It's side note. We uh, we got to know each other working on the Hoodwazee a bunch mm-hmm. last year, mm-hmm. and everyone thought that I would like get upset because the show was running long because like we had to be out of the venue. It was like, no, I just want to be home. <laughs> <laughs> like this is 15 minutes that I am not going to get back in my bed. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just I'm the same way. I'm like, all right, I think the we are society is organized. It's that you're constantly on the go. You know, like capitalism makes us these kind of workers where you're like a machine and all you do is just think about your job, your job, your job, your job. So there's mm-hmm. something about when everybody's gone, having a moment that's just to yourself. That's not about producing, doing work, right? It's yeah. just like, you know, sitting, looking out your window, staring out at, at your yard or mm-hmm. like something. There's something about that that I, it was nice. Like I, I didn't go straight to bed. I just like, sat yeah. in my own little space and was it felt good yeah you know I mean? how much time do you spend not being a producer or a consumer you right know? i mean because so often at least for me like when i flip off the producer switch literally turn on the yeah. consumer switch and there's yeah. no in between time yeah, you shopping online you purchase this i'm literally like I, great i'm done with my work i close my laptop all right let me open my laptop you know <laughs> <laughs> it's like the same relationship yeah. just from the other end yeah so in this year, outside of your work, what are you most excited about that hasn't happened yet? One is my niece turning two. Hey! Uh, shout out. <laughs> um, I just think there's something that's really beautiful about watching a child discover the world. Mm-hmm. And she's now at the place where she's beginning to say words. Like she says my name. You know, there's something nice about getting to the point where we can video. She's, she's in Jamaica. So I'll video with her and then she, she'll see my face and say, Daniel. And then, but she can't, we can't move the conversation forward yet because she, she the right. words aren't there, mm. even I know she's understanding. So that's one thing I'm looking forward to. Mm. That's outside Just like of. like a few more words. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to know what's in her, what's in her head. What, how does a child see the world? Yeah. I feel like I rediscover things when I'm with her, you know, mm-hmm. like her discovering a color, her discovering a letter, like sure a letter and she's like, ah, and she's excited, her learning the number five. There, there's things that, there's something about like, <laughs> of all the numbers, five is the most exciting. Yeah. That's she, a raw number. One, two, three, four, four five. five. Like it's that ex- is, exactly <laughs> it's it. a party. Yeah. It's a party at five. five. Four and, and three are ass, but yeah. five, <laughs> we get lit. <laughs> <laughs> Because her number, her number when I was home um, a few months back, the number that she really liked was um, ten. But it would be one, two, nine, <laughs> ten. You know, like, She's like I don't got time. No, for no, she skip all of it. But 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 that's what's nice about being with a child because a, a child teaches you to appreciate the kind of small things yeah. in life, you know. And so I'm, I'm curious about what would she say about the world? What's the thing? What is the thing that will suddenly bring joy in the world? What's the mundane thing that yeah. she will discover that will help me redis- rediscover the world, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah, at such an early age of development, you know, I have a, an eight-month-old nephew. There's something really impactful about being able to observe the fundamentals of humanity. Realizing that our emotion starts before verbiage. Exactly. Right? And exactly. so also, when I see... Babies, but specifically toddlers, throw temper tantrums. I'm like, oh, 
that's in all of us, right? Yeah. Like we still, that's still what we yeah. feel first. And then there's like all these new exactly. layers of code and updates yeah. that have happened. Yeah. But like, no, what's happening in our first it, is like it's mine or no yeah. or out. Like yeah. That, yeah. That, that is driving us all the time, yeah. which is why I yeah. think we need to need to cry more. Yeah. Mm. No, it's true. That ki- The kind of release of your raw emotions... We'll, she and I will be outside and the joy of like picking something off of the tree, a fruit off the tree. Mm-hmm. The joy of getting the, like she wants a fruit and you're taking too long. She's like, ah! right. But there's something about how you, you learn yourself. Th- those things are still within you. You learn the process of how you came to control these emotions or to suppress them. Mm-hmm. You learn about the way, because what happens is you, the world trains you into being more docile about things, right? Mm-hmm. So you, how you learn to like stop doing thir- certain things, how you learn to fit into certain how you learn codes of social behavior. It's nice to discover that, right? Yeah. So that's one. That's one thing I really, really am happy about. The other thing that hasn't happened this year outside of my job is I'm really curious to see what will be the impact of the last like three years of organizing underneath this neo-fascist, yeah. you know, in power, mm-hmm. this crazy, you know, kind of white supremacist president. I'm curious. I don't know where the, where the world is headed, Mm. And I feel like on the one hand, it's easy to say, oh, my God, like we're living an apocalyptic moment. The world is about to end. Right. There's that. But I'm really curious to see, like, what will be the impact of all of the work that people have been doing, the kind of communities that people have learned to form in this moment what will come of it, you know? And it's mm-hmm. not that, hey, next year, if if a Democrat wins the election, now the struggle is over. Right, no. It's still neoliberalism. It's still, you know, it. what I'm curious about is, is how do people craft alternate worlds or craft alternate spaces when we're facing what we're facing, yeah. right? And then what kind of, what kind of proposals will come out of the organizing, the communities that people are forming? I'll be on Facebook and I'll, see and listen to activist voices or Twitters like young kids or even some of my students, my undergrads. And I'm like, the future is so bright. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to be all right. You know, mm-hmm. in, the, in the sense that there's a way in which people have become so politicized and so oh, mobilized yeah. in this moment. There's reason for hope. So I read it there. I look in the Caribbean. My aunt lives in Bahamas. So the, the hurricane was like, you know, mm-hmm. she's fine. But seeing how people have come to help each other in this moment, hmm. you know, like we're facing, if you, you know, those of us who, you know, we live in the Caribbean, we are the first people, the global south, third world, however you want to use it, we pay the price for capitalism, right? Like we, the destruction of the Caribbean is very imminent threat. It's not like a hypothetical, theoretical thing. Like we feel the destruction, the devastation. And then you see in these moments how people band together hmm. to help each other. I guess what I would say is I'm I'm excited about how these kind of moments of resistance, mobilizing, forming communities will be revamped, will be strengthened, will evolve. And what is it that they'll bring? Mm. Yeah. You know? We had um, Bill Ayers on the show last week and he was talking about, we asked him like, what is the impact, to paraphrase, of the work the Weather Underground did? And he was like, he quoted this Chinese uh, leader who said, like, it's too soon to know. Mm-hmm. We'll know decades and centuries from now what the impact of this work is. And I think that, you know, because like we were talking about, there's such a like demand on uh, gratification and answers and seeing the feedback so fast. I do think you're right. Like, we don't necessarily have a sense of all of the things being done simultaneously right now 
And it is true, the amount of people just doing something is really, really dramatic, and it's easy to lose sight of that, you know, mm-hmm. especially as people who were doing stuff before. And then in that moment, at least for me, like taking a step back into a different type of action mm-hmm. um, that's a little less visible or a little less confrontational, directly mm-hmm. confrontational, mm-hmm. you kind of don't see all the people who weren't there before who mm-hmm. are there now, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. What are you thinking, Dan? I would think the clearest expression of like, the bubbling change that that resonated from what you're talking about is, is the growth in high school consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, next year will be yours as well. My ten year like reunion from graduating high school and just the <laughs> so great. Yeah, it's weird. Um, and and just the yeah the awareness of the world, the the vocabulary about humanity and and, and human systems was is far beyond what was possible or what was accessible to me, and I felt like I was kind of yeah. yeah. Thinking, I thought know? I was smart. That's yeah, what I, yeah, I yeah. thought I was like really but, smart and in tune, but I listen to kids now yeah. and I'm like, but but any type of like intentional 16 year old right now, the the, no. the, the, vo- the vocabulary they mm-hmm. have and the, the access. I mean, we're getting kind of corny of like, not I am, Old at least. No, no, the like access Twitter is here now, mm-hmm. and right? Like, right. But I don't even think it's about that. I think it's not just like access to information because people have had access to information for a while. This is another thing that I don't think we know the impact of. I think that people's brains, the way that they think about things is shifting so much, right? Yeah. It's not just like well, new also, inputs. On, I mean, on the one hand, right, it's good that people are politicized, but we also live in a moment where you have to be politicized mm-hmm. in a way that, not that before the world was, a, you know, a beacon of equality, but I really think that the kind of acceleration of like, you know, the legitimization of white supremacy in, in public discourse in a more rabid way because it was always legitimate. Right. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, I think has forced people... They never felt the need to defend themselves exactly. in the way that they are now. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you're forced to learn a new vocabulary. You know, you watch TV and it's all about, well, Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> like, th- that conversation to me is not is not really... Was, excellent I, yeah, voice. I love your TV I'm, I'm voice. Working, I'm working on it. I'm working on <laughs> the American really accent. I'm working on it. But, you know, like, I, f- I, feel, like, I feel like the conversation is so... When, I, when I'm in Jamaica, people ask me, like, oh, which candidate you're voting for? And as if... That by itself is not really for me. That's not the the real conversation to be had, you know. So I'm I'm curious about the work that's hidden yeah. from public view. You know, what will happen? In movement building. Yeah. Um, Do you have any hypothesis? I have none. I wish. I wish. <laughs> I, I wish I had that level of wisdom. And that's that's the beauty of I guess going back to the earlier question: is what's the thing that I want to see this year? That you know, I, I want to see a lot of the work happening on the ground be recognized in a way that it's not. Mm-hmm. I feel like right now it's not being recognized. I think I'm curious about finding ways to engage with all of these other really beautiful things that are happening in the world that I think will give me a kind of nourishment. Yeah. You read in the papers, you read in the news, you're like, it feels more devastating than it, it did the week before. You <laughs> yeah, know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. And it compounds. Yeah. So Daniel asked about like outside of work, and my hop-in question was going to be, what within work, and it doesn't have to be just like your formal job, but anything that you consider your work, uh, what excites you and or is challenging you? That's a great question. So one is kind of a practical thing for my job. I'm, I'm trying to finish a book. I'm, I'm writing a book about uh, blackface performance in Latin America and the Caribbean. I am excited about getting the book done. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's put it that way. Or getting at least the first draft of the yeah. book done. Because the question that I think I'm asking that drives me in many ways is how is blackness codified in like particular 
representational practices in the Americas, hmm. right? And how is it that histories of slavery shape these representations or these renditions of blackness? And one of the challenges I've had is to not make the conversation be so grounded in a kind of U.S.-centered. Because yeah. whenever, whenever I talk about working on race in Latin America, the knee-jerk, there are kind of two two ways of conversation. We go one way is to say is not as bad as racism in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Or um, well, because they're mixed race, there's a high, you know, like racial mis- miscegenation will, you know, insulate a nation from mm-hmm. racial discord. And I feel like those comparative kind of questions don't. It's not the right question yeah. to me. You know, a slave is a slave is a slave. Like mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know. It's like if you were in born in seventeen, whatever. Now you know you're a slave in Cuba, you're a slave in Brazil, right. you're a slave in the U.S. Like, um, so I, part of the challenge I've had is to find a way to talk about these kind of like different configurations or processes of racial formation that have shaped blackness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to find a language to talk about it that's not too much of like a almost like a kind of oppression Olympics. I'm not mm-hmm. interested in proving that one place is more right. racist than the other or mm-hmm. anything like that, but to really think about what does it mean to represent blackness in a particular way and what are the implications of it, what particular understandings are memories of slavery. Yeah. And, and asking such a, such a large and significant question in what you've been finding, have you been finding more beauty or despair? I mean, it depends. Sometimes, I mean, it's not a, it's not an exciting topic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people are like, "Oh, you do such exciting work." I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, it's objectively a bummer. <laughs> yeah, I mean that people keep doing this, but it's it's also for me what's been really refreshing, or not refreshing, like interesting, is how black people play with these representational mm-hmm. practices. Like, it's not. I'm not just looking at when people dress up in blackface and imitate black people. I'm also looking at when black people use blackface. Yeah, and I feel like. There is something provocative and transgressive and daring and dangerous hmm. about doing it. I stay curious because the longer you sit with a particular material, the deeper you come to understand or the new yeah. where you go with it is very different. Yeah. You know? What was your preconception when you jumped into doing this work and what have been some of the things that have surprised you? When I was in my PhD, I went to a festival in Peru but I went there at the time when I was in Peru, I was actually working with a trans artist. I was writing about a trans artist. He was thinking at the time about um, the long history of gender bending from the Incas to the present. Mm-hmm. I was, and um, he was telling me about these traditional da- indigenous dances in which people cross-dress. And I was like, okay, I'll go and just check it out. Mm-hmm. And I went there and out came these performers eating watermelons in blackface and i was like what is what is happening right now like shock and so i was curious about like why were they doing this what was this in reference to was it doing the kind of queering of gender roles that was named or i mean no this this is a totally separate thing had nothing to do what what i had gone to see i saw a whole other thing and i was like this is not even what i was studying yeah. It's not, you know, like I didn't actually enter being like, I want to study blackface. That's mm-hmm. not that's not how I entered. It's like a carnival where impersonation is really the mm-hmm. order of the day. Right. So it's like everybody's wearing masks, male are across as, as women. People are 
mocking or imitating white people, people are imitating <laughs> slaves, people are imitating colonizers, right? All of, the dancers themselves all have a particular history. Right. So for me, when I saw the performance, I had to step out of my initial reaction and really try and think about, you know, what is this particular history that's being summoned? That was mm-hmm. that was really my first question, mm-hmm. right? And I can hold true that, okay, this is not actually minstrelsy, for example. I can hold that there's an actual very long history of blacking up of, of in kind of indigenous practice. Mm-hmm. That's true. And having you have to recognize a particular genealogy of representation mm-hmm. and a performance tradition, right? And also hold true that there's anti-blackness still there. Mm-hmm. The, right, it's not clean. So it's not, no. yeah, it's not, it's not, the conversation doesn't end with, okay, this is not minstrelsy. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, I think, that's what I think I, I'm interested in doing. So you're, you're talking about one of the challenges of this work is understanding that these, um, that something that looks similar might have different implications or different contexts depending on the realities and the myths of these different places, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the context in the United States that feels most directly relevant to specifically what you were just talking about is like Mardi Gras in New Orleans or mm-hmm. Cajun Mardi Gras where there is like the like the Zulu parade mm-hmm. where it's the same kind of... And it is, sometimes it's white people, but mm-hmm. often it is black people mm-hmm. in this performance. So mm-hmm. where are the kind of through lines mm-hmm. of this between the different iterations? Mm-hmm. And what have been like any surprising peculiarities of different places? You're like, oh, I thought that this was just... A replication, but it turns mm-hmm. out there was something completely different going mm-hmm. on here. Mm-hmm. There are several things. One is, when I would say through lines, is that it's very popular and common, I would say, across the Americas, because mm-hmm. the work I'm doing is more than one country, Peru, Colombia, yeah. Jamaica, Miami. So it's it's not one place. But I would say the carnival is like the most common place for you to find people conjuring blackness. Like mm-hmm. if you're curious to see the kind of ways in which the minute you suspend racial boundaries, how it is that the scene for racial plays are carnival, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not that because there's this scene, there are no power dynamics operating, right? On the contrary, I think that the moment that you open the door to racial play is a moment in which people are able to articulate deep-seated understandings of racial others, yeah. right? And so what is interesting about a carnival is that like Mardi Gras, in Colombia, there's a carnival in Pasto where people black up. In Peru, it's like, you know, these negrito dances in La Fiesta de la Virgen de la Candelaria and all these different places. Like, the common, the ways in which carnival becomes a kind of place for the articulation of racial ideology or where racial understandings of race are produced, are cemented, are disseminated. Um, so the through thread is that, right? Is the ways in which carnival or racial play or performances operate as kind of central or crucial sites mm-hmm. um, in processes of racial formation. But there's also what has given me pause is the vast difference in the history of how these practices come about. So, I mean, on the one hand, you have like, in the U.S., putting on burnt cork and exaggerating lips, all these things, it's like a, f- a highly fraught signifier, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. here in the U.S., there's like a clear history, U.S. minstrelsy. Like there's no, there's no, conf- Lots, yeah, yeah, there's no like confusion about what this could be, where this is coming from, right? right. Whereas in distinct parts of the Americas, the kind of clear-cut historical tradition is not always there. Like the genealogies of how they come to do this particular performance, 
is very different. Mm -hmm. So that's one. But what has been giving me pause is listening or seeing like, for example, there's a there's an indigenous dance in, in Bolivia where people black up. It's called a tundike. Seeing Afro-Bolivians organize against it, like how mm-hmm. how they articulate their displeasure with it. Like there, there's a big campaign happening right now in Bolivia mm-hmm. to ban this dance, to ban this way of representing blackness, like listening to what how they approach the argument, how they approach it. Ver- it's it's really humbling because you have to open your mind to what they, how they will talk about what are these cultural practices yeah. doing, especially when it's like black people talking to indigenous people. That was what I was going to ask. How often is it indigenous folks that they're talking to or that are practicing? I mean, I, it's, it's like everybody, everybody loves to come to, to black up. So it's not, it's not just in <laughs> this particular example I'm giving you, yeah. you know, because equally in Colombia, like there was a huge, huge organizing around a blackface character on TV called Soldado Micolta, who is, would be considered a white Colombian man, black organizers got together and got him removed from TV and he said, okay, and he removed blackface. But now what he's doing is, is I would call it a kind of discursive blackface where it's like mm-hmm. he's using black, what is supposed to be coded as black yeah. speech, he's right? So it's still, and jiving and yeah, about, but it's almost. through language, right? So language mm-hmm. is marking a particular type of blackness. So, yeah. but then looking at how organizing happens around mm-hmm. this and listening to Afro-Bolivian discourses and knowing that when you come up and be like, this comes from the U.S., you actually, it actually doesn't help you because that's not, there is a way in which they're speaking to a very immediate context of where blackness fits within a particular landscape. What I would say is that the most surprising thing is to understand, is learning and listening to how it is that particular groups organize in relation to this in this given moment, like, yeah. and how it, how you read that in relation to the particular context. What, what were some of the tactics? Was it more cultural? I mean, a lot of it was like, you can continue doing this performance, but without blackface, right? Like, mm-hmm. so, which, is, which is actually, I don't think would, would necessarily fly... Here? Here. Hell no. Right. You, you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, 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 you'll be like, get him off the TV, the yeah, end, yeah, right? Yeah, but, yeah. but I wonder what if that would have flown 50 years ago, right? Like if but then the, the, prob- the problem with doing, the problem with doing, the problem with doing the, the timing is then, then we speak in terms as if Latin America is behind, behind. Right. 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 right? And right. it's not, it's just there's a, there's a different approach mm-hmm. to yeah. it, right? A different historical trajectory. Yeah, a different historical trajectory or a different understanding of what they would want to keep and get rid of, you know. Mm-hmm. And then on, in some cases, it's like, get off the TV. In Peru, it was like, you're get, get this person off the TV completely and then eventually he's back on TV now. But he was taken off, the, the station was fined. And then sometimes it's like, you know, everything from protests, everything from running like educational campaigns as to why these representations might be problematic. And, you know, but it's a very different meaning if we were to use the US as a reference mm-hmm. it's a very different thing equally you know the, the the blackface character there's a black woman in Jamaica who blacks up the kind of discourse around it looked very different than the discourse here because blacking up was actually a kind of rendition of working class mm. uh, black woman right and it's a black woman who's doing it and mm-hmm. there's a kind of there's a way in which she's co- encoding a particular socioeconomic background by way of a racial performance, hmm. right? So it's it's like if you when you go to distinct parts of the Americas and you look at what what these way, what these modes of conjuring blackness mean, you need an approach that's not going to be about whether or not minstrelsy got there and how long right, it right. was there. How right. much does does tourism play in versus it being a more internal performance because experience I I was actually in Jamaica I was like on a cruise mm-hmm. and like trying to like you know mute out my like 
political mm-hmm. stuff, you know, all the workers on yeah, the cruise turn ship. It off, yeah. It's like, you know, try to have conversation, but not be ma- angry. It's like, okay, I decided to go. I'm having a family vacation. <laughs> yeah, angry on a cruise. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we, we, we were on a, a more re- remote beach um, and this idea of like black, black facing. So it wasn't actually like paint in any type of way, but it was a woman who was in her 40s or 50s and she put on like a really big fake like cushiony booty mm-hmm. and like a bit and like mm-hmm. was just doing this big ma- mammy mm-hmm. dancing mm-hmm. for all these white people from different ships mm-hmm. coming. It was just really like, I don't know, hard because it was clear that her doing that got her more money yeah, of course. during the day. Yeah, no, of so it's course. like, ah, I can't knock your hustle. Of course. But, the but hustle. this, this yeah. stage mm-hmm. is just really... Mm-hmm uncomfortable at the highest form for mm-hmm. me right now mm-hmm. um and so where does that play in across the different spaces right. of it being like a, a performance internal right. like traditional culture or like yeah. oh this is a yeah. something we're doing for an external right. touristic we're giving them what they want to see right. here what yeah. they've been imagining is here all along. right well that this is the thing that i one of the things that i'm thinking about too in, in my own work is the fact that blackness is currency in a in a global marketplace mm. right and so trafficking blackness is part and parcel of living in a globalized economy, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no no performance of blackness is operating. Even if if this person is doing it on the ship with two other black people beside her, it's not that a particular kind of racial capital is not being exploited, right? Mm-hmm. right. So and it's 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 a kind of racial capital that we've all been socialized and exposed to because it's not just local, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So all of these renditions of blackness operate within a particular economy of representation where doing these things make you money, right? Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not like a coincidence, mm-hmm. right, that there's actually a marketplace for these renditions of blackness. And so one of the things to think about is why is it that these renditions of blackness continue to sell right. so many, like how far from slavery are mm-hmm. we, right? Like why, why is it, why do these... Why do these particular renditions? Why are they so in demand? Yeah. What are, what are you thinking about it right now? I don't have a a clear answer. Yeah, to let's it. work through it. We'll just read because your book. it's not because I mean the book is the book yeah. is thinking precisely yeah, 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 yeah. through you know these are questions that I'm I'm thinking about. But one of the performers I write about is a black woman who uses blackface, but she she used it in an exhibit at a museum, and she's doing it to. Well, I won't give you the argument. You have to buy my book, but it, it's not. It's <laughs> Spoiler not, alert! <laughs> it's it's not it's not as simple as perpetuating. On the contrary, I think it's highlighting the ways in which black bodies are demanded mm-hmm. to do a particular type of performance in order to have access. In to order, space, exactly yeah. mm-hmm. right. So the ways in which black artists are called upon to engage in particular renditions of blackness, mm-hmm. right? You yeah. can't you can't get away with it because your body on stage on a ship on the street is not just yours alone, right? Your mm-hmm. body's operating in relationship to a particular gaze and in, in relationship to a particular economy. And, and so what I think is important to recognize is that you're operating within a larger mm-hmm. economy. Mm-hmm. Like you're not, you and you're blacking up and you're putting this big ass on a cruise ship is not operating outside of particular histories and representations of yeah. blackness. So without getting any specifics, I think there's, all kinds of examples of those expectations or those certain performances of blackness being projected on and demanded that I think people are expected in all kinds of spaces, whether that's public or the academy mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, pop culture. We see it as kind of like the main example. But uh, for you as an individual, knowing that there are some expectations being put on you in different spaces, 
what are the ways that you choose to signal? Do you choose to signal like, hey, I'm not going to play that game? Mm. How do you navigate that? It's a very like broad mm. and somewhat personal question. I mean, it, it depends on, on what, where you what, are. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> and it depends on the context and, and what you what you mean. So yeah. I, I'll put it back to you. Sure. What are you asking? Yeah. Well, I'm probably going to cut this. I was going to ask about in the academy, but I didn't want to put you on blast because you asked. I that. mean, no, like, what's it, what does it mean to be a black person in the academy? Or for you, knowing the same way we were talking about, there are these expectations mm-hmm. and certain um, renditions that are mm-hmm. in demand by these institutions. Mm-hmm. There are versions of that within the academy. Right. How yeah, do you navigate yeah. that? How do yeah. you choose to... Yeah reject or participate in different yeah. ways. It's tricky because we're okay, one is that and this is this is just like people who study and work on what it means to be a black woman in the academy. Like there's mm-hmm. actual work yeah. on this, right? So what I'm seeing is not just like my personal experience is like we're I'm loving it. We're, this voice is <laughs> voice. This is like the voice of the internet is what you're doing. Yeah. It's like mainstream internet is this way. I just think that nah, 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 nah. my personal experience. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean the fact that black women in the academy are called upon to do all kinds of you know service expectations fall on you more than other colleagues because your diversity you're expected to fulfill a set of diversity requirements you're expected to be an expert on diversity right. in the university how it is that you have to establish your authority you know more so than than some of your other colleagues um you also have to think about overachieving right the whole <laughs> you know you have to do twice as twice as good as your white colleagues right these are i mean these are kind of the real expectations that are thrust upon black women and black scholars generally having to be careful about what what battles you choose <laughs> right like the academy was not built for for black and brown people it was not you know mm-hmm. so you're always going to have to navigate the racism of a particular institution in which you work that's that's the reality of like being in the academy yeah. but i think it's a mistake to think that if you leave the academy you're certainly not going to be navigating you know, <laughs> these these institutions like right. white supremacy permeates all of society. So for me, it's been really crucial to one is cultivate communities, cultivate mentorship, have mentors who are very clear and aware and cognizant of what expectations are placed upon me. In my current context, I'm very fortunate that I have like mentors who are like clear about the ways in which I'll be called upon to do things that my white colleagues might not be called upon to do. You know, yeah. like having mentors and people who are senior to you who are cognizant of that is like, it's crucial. <laughs> like, because I get called upon to do a lot of diversity stuff. And then there's that. But then you also have to deal with students who expect you to take on right. a mentorship role mm-hmm. to them. You know, and I mean, I know I was one of those students when I left, I you know, I came to the US for undergrad first and then went back to Jamaica and then came back for grad school. Hmm. I know I placed a lot of demands on black faculty because I was like, oh my God, a black person, oh my God, a brown person. So so you called upon to do things that you're not actually qualified to do. So you have to learn. So I know you want to feel like you're working with a black scholar on your project, but that's not my training. Mm, So having to find ways to serve and advocate for students and students of color without compromising your own integrity on your own work, mm-hmm. you know, and, and knowing, knowing how to say, I can't take this on. For me, what I've done is like, I read up on what have black women scholars who got tenure, how do they say no? Mm-hmm. And I use the language that they 
give me, you know, like <laughs> ways to say, hey, I can't participate in this diversity thing or not now, but later or, you know, timing. That sounds it. like some really important game. Let's, you have let's, to play let's, it. Let's try to get a, a list of like three to five graceful no's. <laughs> my plate is really full with. Ooh, the old full plate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah my smart. plate is really full with. Or hey, this year I can do it, but can I do this next uh, year? That, that's been road, that's and that's good. and honestly, like because that's a sincere one. That's real. Yeah, like yeah. I've been like, okay, I can do this next year, but I can't do it this year. Mm-hmm. You know, or well, I'm already done on this, so I wouldn't be, you know, like, uh, you have to... Explain your commitments. Yeah. Okay. This is, you know, it all comes down to knowing how to write the perfectly worded email sometimes. Yeah. My, my no game and my ass game, my direct ask <laughs> game, which is weird because so much of my life is, like, making, like, big ask on the public, but my direct ass game and my no game are ass. I, I realize that. It just that. sounds it so like much like you're saying my direct ass. Yeah. Game. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I don't know. That's a different game. Yeah, yeah but I'm a, I'm a terrible asker. It, it disrupts me to have to ask people for things. And then my no game is, is pretty flimsy. Were you a natural at knowing? Or no, no, it took no. Some I, don't think, I don't think that women are, we are mm-hmm. socialized to mm-hmm. be people pleasers, part of the way that patriarchy works. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so learning to say no is, is hard. But I, I find that I feel very happy to be in a scenario where, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe when I come up for 10 I've said it's no, and then it's like, you don't get 10 you said no to it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, you never know. It's too early yeah, to see how yeah, successful yeah. this is. But um, no, but I, I mean, you have to really protect, you have to protect your time, but you still also have to serve your communities, you know, mm-hmm. like, okay, so I can't work with this particular student because I'm a black person, they'll be like, hey, come on to this thing about like, you know, mass incarceration in Chicago. It's like, I don't, I don't really, I've, do, have I read books? Yeah. Am I a black person in Chicago? Yes. But does that qualify me to speak with, you know, people who've actually worked on that stuff? Yeah. No. Yikes. You know? I've are, definitely showed up to things just because <laughs> <laughs> I'm from here and I've read books. Maybe I, should, maybe I wasn't qualified. No, I mean, no, but I mean, you can you can show That's up. That's all I did. You can show up, but like it's it's quite another thing to be called upon to right. debate people who that's, as, as that's their thing. Yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. what they... If you formally study. Yeah, and that's not... Yeah, it's like, I mean, I don't really, you know. And we don't have to just talk about the expectations externally placed on you, but I am curious just to that point about being someone who is studying diaspora who grew up outside of the country. Are there any expectations that you find people like assuming about your lens on the work that may or may not be true? So everybody, you're always producing knowledge from a a particular position, right? you know? So, I mean, I am a black person who grew up in the Caribbean, who my mother is a Spanish teacher, so throughout my childhood, we used to go to different Latin American countries. Mm who when I became a scholar and went to Latin America to study, I, I realized that my blackness would get in the way of people taking me seriously as a scholar. Like to mm. say I'm from Jamaica and I'm a scholar, it would be very different if I were a white person, a white man coming from the U.S. to study, right? Like I've, I've gone to places where I couldn't, they wouldn't let me into the building. I mean, they'd have me standing outside like, and I'd be like, no, 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 I'm really until... The people who knew me came in and said, no, 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 she's really, or like, you know, the assumption that black women are prostitutes when you go to particular spaces, like Mm. having to navigate that, Mm. right? So the ways in which your blackness undercuts the privileges that are afforded to other people Mm -hmm. when you're in the field shapes the way in which you talk about anti-blackness in your work. Like, I'm not talking about it from a kind of... Abstract. No, I'm talking about it in the ways in which 
being black in these different places in the Americas shaped my understanding of what it meant to be black mm-hmm. in the Americas. And, fi- and, fi- and finding that, like, you know, I've lived in Jamaica, I've lived, I mean, all over Latin America, Argentina, Peru. I've spent a lot of time in different countries, Cuba, U.S., and finding that, like, the same... You're not really getting away mm. from. <laughs> you're still black. Yeah, you know I mean, <laughs> maybe if I had an ambiguous racial, mm. that would be different. So to put it simply, I feel like your positionality is always impacting the ways in which you approach your work. You know, and and that you should name it and what it means to be Jamaican and study in Latin America. Like mm. when I tell people I'm a professor, the assumption is not that I am a Spanish professor or like mm. a Latin American. That's not what people assume. Mm. You know, I mean, when they look at me, they do a same professor either, but like, you know, it just. Black so, people don't speak Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> and so Jamaicans, Jamaicans definitely don't speak yeah. Spanish. No. Mm-hmm. It shapes the way you're perceived, it shapes the way you, you, you approach your work. Mm-hmm. It also shapes the way you're, you're received in black spaces, like black activist spaces. And when I've mm-hmm. traveled, my blackness, you know, helps. <laughs> like, right? Yeah. Like the, in the kind of access. That I get when I want to get information, like it helps, it does, right? But it's a very complicated thing. It's, it's neither your blackness. It's, it's not simple as always benefit, always mm-hmm. bad or Cause, vice versa. Because then you're coming from the university space. Exactly, so it, yeah. So you know, and to be in the university, you know, there's a way in which you're participating in a particular system mm-hmm. that you have to right. be aware of. You have to be cognizant of what these institutions are and and what what's the kind of intervention you want to make in those spaces you know Mm. so for me like I want to produce a particular type of knowledge that I think has not been produced Mm -hmm. before so the academy gives me the space to that the academy is not the only space where I could have done it Mm -hmm. right or nor is the academy a better space for doing it Mm -hmm. it just turns out that the academy worked for for what or is working right now yeah um, and it's but, not the only space that you currently do. I mean, no. in the Hodwazi, the way you brought this lens and these understandings to those conversations that were either hyper-local or hyper-global, and you were like, well, let's look at this aspect in the conversation, was like, it was needed in that space just as much, and it was useful, and you could bring that there in a way that was like valued and needed too. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, so, so I hear you talking a lot about the extra load you have to carry as a black woman which from my understanding is like universal in every space just being you know an added burden but particularly in academia i heard this like twofold pull of like from below you this like need for support and probably a like an honest or sincere misunderstanding of like your full humanity it's Mm -hmm. like oh you've made it you're a professor you Mm -hmm. can help me out but then on the other side you kept using this language of like diversity work Mm -hmm. and diversity is a word particularly when it's like institutionalized that like scratches my eardrums oh yeah like a like a crazy cat oh yeah Um, (laughs) you did just get it (laughs) i do have a little have a little cute crazy cat (laughs) um shout out to winnie um (laughs) where are you at with that particular language what does it mean it feels to me like as white supremacy has continued to emerge with time that word has become more and more diluted and, and even like problematic mm-hmm. in how it's um, deployed so mm-hmm. w- how do you feel about it how, you have to say no to some of that work but but structurally what what does that constantly well, mean? The, I mean the one thing I'll say is that I'm still at the place where I'm figuring out what the university means by diversity and I said that because I just got there right. yeah. it's not like dodging the question it's mm-hmm. like when a university says I'm committed to diversity which is what the university says they all do <laughs> I need I need to see what that means. Yeah. I'm in a place of waiting. 
you know, and so and and I mean that sincerely to mm-hmm. the extent that like they're literally like filling in because when I I got hired at the same time that a lot a lot of other um, black people got hired at the university, a lot of black and brown people got hired at the university, and so right now in my lens, diversity has looked like recruiting a cohort of faculty of color, a cluster hire that creates an environment in which you're not a token black person in your division, for mm-hmm. example, right? right? But I'm sure there are other issues happening that I don't know yet, you right. know? So for me, I'm a bit playing the waiting game. I think that diversity as a buzzword, when institutions take on that language, it's not going to be a radical, transformative thing mm-hmm. because that's just not what those institutions are. Because then they would just say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to yeah. radically transform the space. Instead yeah. Of making <laughs> yeah. So so I think for me, I don't think that you can look to these institutions for radical anything. Like, I I just don't. And it's not that I'm saying that, you you know, an institution can do good work Mm -hmm. that's that's transformative or that's radical. And you can also engage that space and and develop your own. Exactly. You come in and bring in your, you know, Mm -hmm. like I don't it's not it's not it's not something to close the door to what could be in the future. But for me, like I'm very clear about what diversity means and it what it tends to mean in institutional spaces is not one in which you're gonna see a, a huge radical organizing it's that's not that's not, not what they're trying to do no but you, you shouldn't be going to those places for it that's that's the way i see it. like i'm not in the university I, f- I think if i want to find radical transformative potential it's the streets what are people doing on the streets what you learn from the streets you use to produce your knowledge. So to that point, we were talking before we started recording about pre-university, pre-being in the States life, um, and the navigation that your father did between a liberation theological lens mm-hmm. and an institution that hold, held incredible sway. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering if you can just share a little bit about kind of that balance that you were talking about to me and how that, if at all, shaped your understanding of your relationship between like being in but not of and, right, and all that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. Um so I come from a, a family of intellectuals. My father is is a, he had a radio show for twenty five years. He's a very famous pundit. He's a theologian. He actually came to the US for a period to study theology. In the late seventies, eighties he was labeled as communist and so he left. He wasn't, you know, he was basically blacklisted. He couldn't preach anywhere. He's a preacher. He couldn't preach anywhere. Um, You said in the 70s? Yeah, 70s, 80s. Anyone did any kind of radical poor people, you know, in in that time period is you're a communist, Mm -hmm. right? And so his whole thing is liberation theology. His work is around liberation theology and poor people and anti-capitalism. But the church that he's a part of is, you know, very much tied to evangelical churches in the U.S. here, mm. it's a kind of heavy right wing. So, okay, I'll just give a background. Like, I mean, all this comes out of Reagan, but but also in the last... Doesn't at all. <laughs> in the last, like, <laughs> let's say, what, I don't know, 10 years, people who work on this will correct me because I don't, I don't work on this specifically. They're not on the podcast. They're not on the podcast. So, you know, I mean, so academics are like... Already. You know, whoever <laughs> knows more. But basically, you know, like, as the U.S. loses its fight against, for example, gay rights... Those evangelicals just come to mm-hmm. the Caribbean mm-hmm. and Africa mm-hmm. and they, you know, sponsor all of these things, right? So hmm. what happens to him, I was telling Daniel, is that um, in many ways, he's someone who is Christian, who believes in, you know, believes in the church, believes in God, 
but is never seen as Christian by his peers because mm. he's the politics is not one of what would be a right wing uber capitalist thing, right? So which yeah. is why he was labeled Marxist, even though he didn't he had never even read Marx. <laughs> it was just, you know, he's just a poor a man from a poor community in Montego Bay who had a vision of the world that is not deeply grounded in capitalism or it doesn't fit what what is a liaison between capitalism and religion. Right. Shout out right? to Pops. Wait, wait, this is Pops. We shared a birthday. This is Pops. This is my there man. You go. There you go. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really beautiful that faith is actually one of the only places where someone can say like, oh, you're not a Christian. You go, well, fuck you. Like, <laughs> yeah. I am. I have, yeah. Decide, yeah. Like, yeah. I have defined this for myself. How are you going to tell me I don't believe something? You can get like, kicked out of not, a church, but you can't get me kicked out of Christianity. Out of faith. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I guess maybe you can. I don't know. I'm not Christian. I don't know what the rules are on that, how, how far they can kick you down you the road. I mean, but. like a, a specific, like, you know, yeah, they, yeah. they have um, excommunication in different, like, sex and different denominations, but you can't tell someone that That's they That's when you're trying to communicate? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're ex. <laughs> <laughs> you can't tell someone that they're not. What they it's so eternal, yeah, 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 yeah. No, so I mean, you know, in many ways, it's about use for him, it's been about using a particular thing to do the kind of interventions in Hmm. as a platform for the the radical work that he wants to do, you know. And so, for me, it's like in some ways, I see myself in relation to academy in that way. It's like, what can I Hmm. bring that can initiate change with with full recognition that this institution is designed to do Hmm. something different, right? Similar to like the, the church calling him not. Yeah, well, I would say I would say his very fundamentalist colleagues, because mm-hmm. he's not a fundamentalist, right? Those that kind of have the biggest platform in the church, how they will say mm-hmm. he's not really this or he's mm-hmm. not really yeah. that, and you know he doesn't need to prove that to them because right. in his thinking and his theology, it's me, that's between me and God, and I'm doing the work that I need to do, and you know. So did you grow up around a radio show? Yeah, yeah. Like so I worked, I worked in radio in Jamaica for a little period. Mm. And he's still radio. He's on radio TV. What was his show? His show was called Public Eye at the time. So the show is a call-in show um, that people call in and, you know, talk about current events. It could be like, hey, you know, my community has not had water for a month. That but is we're a still current getting, event. Yeah. <laughs> that is a very current But we're event. still getting bills and the water commission hasn't come, right? Mm. So p- poor people, like, I mean, radio shows in Jamaica, those calling shows, are those are the places where if you want to hear poor people talk about abuse that they've experienced at the mm. hands of this person when they went to the off when they took their child to this hospital like that show or those shows are very important venues for people working class people mm. to air their grievances yeah. their troubles that's what we, a we get use that of the medium a, yeah. a democratic tool have yeah. you ever uh, read lost city radio sorry Dave. No. It's a novel by this uh, professor, uh, Daniel Alarcón, who runs a radio show called Radio Ambulante, which is the first Spanish-language NPR show, I think. But he's a professor at Columbia, and he wrote this book called Lost City Radio, um, and it takes place in—this is, like, right up your alley. <laughs> it takes place in an unnamed uh, Latin American country that's kind of an amalgam. Uh, it's, like, awesome. loosely based on Peru, and it takes place, like, 10 years into a civil war wow. with, an, with a repressive dictator— and the protagonist is this woman who has a radio show where people call in to share like the name and information of their missing loved ones. Mm-hmm. 
And then this is the way that they can reconnect with them, right? Is they oh, call nice. in from anywhere in the country, and everyone listens That's to their show. Yeah. This is this is what's, the, what's like the name the, of the book? Lost, Lost City Radio. Right, we'll put right, it in right. the uh, Ergo reading list. Yeah, you can yeah, catch yeah, that. There's probably website. a lot of Caribbean, Latin American fiction around. Right? Like the did you see that uh, new Donald Gulliver, Rihanna? Oh yeah, movie? yeah. The um, he, Guava Island. Yeah, that was cool. He was a he was a radio DJ, who oh, kind of like nice. was a voice for the people. Damn, yeah, yeah. You've been writing a book. We've been watching. No, I would love to read that though. That would be. I mean, my reading for pleasure list is is just there. It has not been touched, sadly. Yeah. I also don't. I don't read any fiction. Really? Yeah, it's not like it's, a, it's hard. It's hard. hard. I mean, like I teach in a literature department, so I read I read ah, fiction okay. and I teach fiction. So it's not true that but that's I don't work, read. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but like you know, it, it's hard on my own to get me to like pick up. A, well, it's not pick up a literary text, but a literary text that's like very far away from the literature mm. I need to think about. Yeah. It's like. It's hard for me. Yeah, I got a novel in the mail today. Ah, it's well, uh, Tanazi Coates' new book. Oh, nice! We got and I got a free copy of it. Oh, which wow. I will share with anyone here. Not any <laughs> listener. It's just too much mailing. But it's because we reached out. Anyway, it's a long story. But they sent us a review copy. So Damon, oh, expect. I, I, in fact, I think I have it in my bag. Oh man, I might, I might review. A copy. We're gonna do an unboxing. <laughs> That's great. So, so thinking about that seed of like media as like a, a democratic tool, I want to get back to one of the things you were talking about in the study a lot of you know the entry point being cultural representation, mm-hmm. and and you were using this language of race play, mm-hmm. and I, I'm really want to hear where where you are with your notion or understanding of representation as an mm-hmm. idea, because mm-hmm. for me. It became another one of those like cat in my eardrum words mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I've seen our political system more and more that representative politics actually reduces participation in democracy from like my viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And then I began to transfer that over to culture mm-hmm. and like representative culture usually feels really flat to me. It usually mm-hmm. feels dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get to like the particular mm-hmm. of story. So like, for example, like empire, right? Like mm-hmm. it's kind of easy to shit on empire mm-hmm. now. Like when that first came out, it was being celebrated mm-hmm. as like, Oh, there are black people on TV. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's garbage. Mm-hmm. Right. right and, and, yeah. and, but the idea of representation similar mm-hmm. to, Oh, I have a, I have somebody in office who's speaking for me mm-hmm. instead of me being like, I'm being represented mm-hmm. and I would rather be present. Mm-hmm. So that's my little idea, mm-hmm. but I think yeah. you're studying it. That's yeah. Just my well, idea. I, well, I don't mean representation <laughs> in that way. I'm yeah. not talking about a kind of representational politics where people stand in on behalf of or speak on. I'm, I'm, I'm actually um, more interested in what we talk about as a kind of regime of representation. So by that, mm. I mean like, <laughs> what does it mean for a particular body to appear on stage and in the street and how they're coded i don't i don't i don't mean like oh my god yes mm-hmm. no blackness appears in a cartoon or no blackness is appearing in a carnival or no blackness is appearing in the museum it's like how exactly does blackness appear mm-hmm. how is blackness contoured under what limitations under what condition is blackness being called upon to to appear in these mm-hmm. particular different sites the question is more about how and not a is blackness yeah. being represented. Because we have like a lot of cultural amnesia actually about all the ways that blackness has been and continues to be represented in mm. like popular. It's just yeah. harmful ways or caricatured ways or violent ways. But it's omnipresent. Yeah. Yeah. You know. What what have been um some of the most liberating expressions you, you have found or, hmm. or uncovered? You see, I hate speaking in those terms. Because terms liberate because like not li- in comparison to each other, but maybe for what, the people. Is is well. anti oppressive easier? No, I was going to finish. Why, okay. why I hate yeah, speaking yeah. in those no, terms? We'll, we'll just keep cutting no, so, <laughs> no, when I say I hate speaking in those terms, because, I mean, let's say someone who is an artist who's working on blackness, right? Like, what for them might feel 
liberatory for them mm-hmm. might not necessarily be liberatory for others or for their communities. So mm. I feel like the first question I would ask is what we use to measure when we talk about liberatory, what are we using? That would be the question. I would say activating energy, resources, consciousness towards resisting and opposing oppressive norms and processes. Okay. All right. So for me, like one was really amazing. So at UChicago, I'm in this group, Slavery and Visual Culture. What a group to be in. (laughs) I mean, so we organize. Better than a frat. (laughs) (laughs) So we we organize like readings and events and Mm -hmm. bring people on. We're thinking about really exploring like questions on slavery and and visuality, um, Mm -hmm. primarily in the Americas, primarily, but elsewhere too. And we organized this conference in Cartagena this year in Colombia. And the conference took place in this convent, which was called San El Comento San Pedro Claver. And uh, one of the artists I invited to perform, her name is Liliana Angulo, I asked her to do an intervention in the space. This was a space where enslaved blacks were held. They were interpreters. Um, They worked with this particular Jesuit that lived there. And so, you know, I said to her, um, I want you to do something to activate this space. And so what she did was she got black kids from Cartagena who were dancers, they're a dance group. Um, the director of the group, is, his name is Nemesio. She gave them scripts of like the experiences of black people who were made to live in, in enslaved black people who were made to live in this convent and have them physically interpret it with their bodies in mm. the space. So, I mean, the performance that they did was like, for me, it was one of the most transformed. Like people were like tears welling up because one of the performers, for example, stood underneath the big bell in in the convent and started reading the story of like you know it, everything from like torture to to just like what it means to be black in this mm-hmm. time period and and using the physical body to activate the memory yeah. of enslaved people. And so for me, one of the things that was really incredible about this performance. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that performance was liberating. I wouldn't. I wouldn't use that language. You know what I'm saying? What I would say is that that performance activated the space in a way that made particular memories that had otherwise been hidden present, mm-hmm. right? And that that performance reconfigured or or proposed an alternative to the way that space had been institutionally imagined, right? Mm-hmm. And in those moments, I think if we're to think about liberation is not a thing where we're free, but where a, a particular proposed imagination of the world can be articulated. And it was yeah. articulated by way of the body, yeah. by the way of black bodies, children. These are kids, 16, 17, some of them yeah. queer kids, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like queer kids, queer black kids in Cartagena in a convent giving you a rendition of their ancestors' experiences. Mm. Yeah. Is that liberatory? I, I, I don't know if that's the word I want, you mm. know, because I think there's so much more to that. It's mm. truthful. It's daring. I think these yes. are proposals. It's life-bringing. It's brave. Yeah, it's, 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 it's about to me. It's like, what can you propose? Because after, after witnessing that, it's hard for me to look at the convent in the same way. Right. And it doesn't mean right. I, I'm suddenly like... That's the space where black liberation happens. Mm-hmm. But it's a way in which particular memories were made 
present. Right. Right. You offered an important word that That's I left beautiful. out of my, my definition of liberation. I, I framed it as kind of like the negation or the opposition, but I also see like propositional. That's right. That's exactly right. As, so, you, yeah. th- so I feel like that would be the language that I prefer, mm-hmm. but I do. I do Transformative revolution. Yeah. And, and also mm-hmm. because there's something about, it's really hard for people to imagine alternatives to the systems in which we live. And that's not a coincidence Capitalism kills the imagination, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. It's, for example, structural <laughs> adjustment in Jamaica. I'll tell you a story about my... So my father is from Montego Bay. I don't know why I talk about my father. My mother has a very interested <laughs> life, too. I don't know why she's being left out in this thing. I do think I have mommy me. issues. <laughs> but no, but like... One of the things... Shout that, out to moms. <laughs> yeah. Love you, mommy. She, she, we don't share a birthday, so that's No, why. that's yeah. why. She, that's she, when's, why. Her, when's her she's birthday? Not making the March 10. Yeah, what's, what's, what's that about? Within two weeks of my mom's. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, mommies are the best. Just a coincidence. Yeah, mom. Yeah, shout out to moms. <laughs> no, what, what I was saying is that right now in Jamaica, so I'm following structural adjustment, and now with the Chinese coming into Jamaica, you know, and all capitalism, 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 right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that has happened in some of these communities, a friend of mine who's doing work in these communities, her name is Natalie Bennett. She works with people in a community in Montego Bay in Grandville. And one of the things that has happened as investment, air quotes, has arrived is that suddenly there are all these supermarkets right? And they've closed down the libraries. Mm. So here's the thing. (laughs) What has happened now in this present moment, you have to teach those children in those communities, Natalie and I were talking about this, to understand why a library is important. Mm. Right. And then the first thing you have to get them to do is to imagine a community looking in a different way from what it looks to them now. And to get them to understand the value of that imagination before you even get to when you're going to lobby to get the people, you know, before you get there. So for me, a lot of what I'm interested in, and I guess it's why I think about how something is represented, how is indigenous represented, how is blackness represented, because it tells me what an imagination is. Mm. And I think that imagination is a starting point Mm -hmm. for any kind of transformation that's going to take place in the world. And it's so interesting because both of these examples are the act of imagining things that already existed. Right. Right. It's not even imagining Mm. futures. Mm -hmm. It's imagining an accurate past. Mm -hmm. That's true. And it's also about when you can open yourself to thinking in new ways, a different type of future can be possible, you know? And so it's it's opening the imagination. Like for me, when I was watching that performance I was talking about in the comments, like that's about reimagining the space but it's reimagining it and then embodying it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just live in the head. No. Too. It doesn't no. live in a paper somewhere. No. It lives in people's bodies and yeah. lived experiences. Yeah. I have one yeah. more topic. Sure. Which I'll try to, try to filtrate into some questions. <laughs> um, Not infiltrate. <laughs> filtrate. Um, one of the things I'm grateful about this conversation is I'm always in my like limited perspective and experience trying to expand my relationship and my understanding of blackness. And I realize like globalizing my perspective is needed to do that successfully. So thank you, one, for just offering some of that. As most folks in the States do, like comparing to a U.S. construct where we've had this uh, false artificial dichotomy of like white black. Mm. Right. What, what I recognize throughout the Caribbean and throughout, you know, South and, and Latin America, uh, is that I'm sure it is artificial too, but this like trichotomy of, you know, European colonizer, indigeneity, and the African. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, it depends, and it depends on the country. So, right. yeah. Yes. We've, I've been speaking, let me just confess, I've been speaking in very broad terms, but yeah, each country yeah. has a different... So that, that, I want to yeah. get to complicating that because 
Um, I want to I want to know a little bit more about how those dynamics play out. I was really intrigued by. It was feeling like you were saying there was these anti-black performances from indigenous populations. Mm-hmm. I think in Bolivia specifically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then even here. And this, and then I'll stop, and we'll see if this has become a question. Um, <laughs> well, we'll find out. <laughs> even even here, I've become very intrigued by the the, the notion of Afro-indigeneity and yeah. the intersection to like modernage and the way that like we have intertwined, but also learning more and more that there is a pre-colonial African history mm-hmm. in the Americas. Mm-hmm, it is, mm-hmm. There's more and more archaeological mm-hmm. evidence. Yeah, that, bu- that book that came before Columbus. That came before Columbus, yeah. yeah. You know, when you think about the Olmec heads and yeah, you know, how yeah. many thousands of years they are, yeah. and they're obviously African features. That's kind of the topic mm-hmm. where I'm at. So maybe um, how does Afro-indigeneity mm-hmm. and that intersection work in different spaces? I don't know. I mean, it, that's I mean that's a really big question. It depends on the context. And I, I don't know literally, like, yeah. it's not something I've thought about so deeply. Let, let's go empirical then. What are ways that you've seen it in the specific examples you've looked at? Well, out? I mean, going back in Bolivia, you have um, black people who live in indigenous community wear indigenous clothes speak indigenous languages Mm -hmm. and will identify as indigenous for example there's a (laughs) in fact i think i may have i think i wrote about this like on a blog post uh about my experience of seeing this particular performance a black woman dressed in like really traditional indigenous clothes and spinning around and and the ways in which they understand because each of them when you talk to them they have very different understandings of their own blackness Mm -hmm. in relationship to indigeneity because culturally they have deep ties to indigenous communities but within those communities they are marked as black Mm -hmm. right Right? Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and that and that complicates their lived experiences you know and so for whatever the particular implications of that meaning are it changes things yeah so some have wanted to distance themselves from their black heritage Mm -hmm. some have gone the opposite of like you know what i want to identify as black and be as close to blackness as I can mm-hmm. right like so you're gonna get like different it's different you know yeah. in that particular scenario I think the fact that they live in those communities doesn't change the fact that they're still negotiating anti-blackness mm-hmm. even as they culturally identify as indigenous as well right mm-hmm. even even though their world their community and I'm talking about black people the black women specifically who I met who are from Mukasol. Mukasol, I think that's oh, Mukasol. I can't remember. I have to, because it's off the top of my head, there's an acronym for what they're called, but it's like Movimiento, Movimiento Afro-Boliviano or something. Other. I can't remember what it's called. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look it up and, mm-hmm. t- and tell you. We, we would help you, but... <laughs> <laughs> Like we we both love an acronym. Yeah. I don't. I don't remember. Our, this is out of our league. I don't remember. I actually don't remember like what the actual acronym is. But mm-hmm. but these, they they live in La Paz and their their family members live in one of the indigenous communities. For them, it's a really complicated thing to navigate when you're in a kind of indigenous space, but you're black. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, I have a follow up question, but I've, it's more for myself. I feel uncomfortable putting the pressure on you to answer, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take the leap. <laughs> so. You know, in kind of this trying to like globalize or expand, I've tried to like complicate this idea of there's this like global social hierarchy and like blackness is at the bottom. I've tried <laughs> to complicate that. <laughs> and American indigeneity has helped that complication of 
there are ways that you could read that history as you know, equally as harmful or traumatic, or even in some ways you could see it as like a greater harm mm. and trauma. Mm. Uh, but in hearing just the glimpses of some of these stories, mm. it feels very clear that like that initial hierarchy is kind of reinforced mm. of even within this population that has experienced mm-hmm. genocidal practice, you know, uh, harm on a, on a I mean, hemispheric level. It's a, it's how, does, a little, how does black and still it's a li- it's, <laughs> it's a little bit more complicated than that because one is I don't want to get to I don't want to get into like what what would be kind of oppression Olympics right, was right. you I'm know trying to, trying to like that. Where, where you just like black people are on the bottom all the time the we end. don't even like the regular yeah. Olympics yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take some track but that's pretty much it yeah, no field <laughs> just, just the track. track just track <laughs> Tired of fields. Winter Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down to run. We're running away. We're not. <laughs> we're not staying in no more field. All right, that was that was kind of. I think I think rather <laughs> rather than thinking about it as where black people fit in, in particular, so like in the Bolivian case, like blackness was written out of national identity, right? Like mm-hmm. written out of it and indigeneity is when you think of Bolivia you're not thinking about black people you're thinking about indigenous people mm-hmm. like, that's not a coincidence because mm-hmm. they do have black people right mm-hmm. and in Latin America there's a long history of erasing the black presence in different parts of the country not oh, you know everything varies I think it's more useful or what, what let me say what's more useful to help, me help me out is to think about the ways in which anti-black discourses shift according to a particular moment according to a particular epoch according to a particular circumstance Mm -hmm. and the countries that I study are not countries in which black people are wielding enough power to not be in a position of subordination like Mm -hmm. they just the countries I'm studying that's just not statistically reality yeah I mean statistically like still fighting to get on television still fighting for particular to get access to particular jobs still fight fighting for education right like I don't study any well ex- I mean I do study Jamaica so that's another story right <laughs> but anti-black discourse still operates and we're in a predominantly black country but I mean I think that hmm. I think that what's useful to think about it is to ask the whole question rather than the where question of where blackness fits it's like mm-hmm. how is blackness operating within this particular imaginary and working from there. Mm-hmm. It keeps me it keeps me more open-minded, mm-hmm. you know? And it's a more interesting question to ask because it opens, the, like you said, not just open mind, but like the how opens up a lot of new Yeah, the how rather than the what. Yeah. You know I, mean? I mean, but you still need the what because how is tied to where mm-hmm. blackness fits. Yeah. And, you know, like the hierarchy. Who were who the thinkers that came before you that have shaped your, your approach or your work the, the most? I'm going to talk about first this is the shout out portion of the show. <laughs> it's a good shout out. So I want to, before I get to the big name intellectuals who publish their books and who everybody will go and Google them, I want to talk about the people who I got knowledge from. So I want to talk about knowledge in my house mm-hmm. from my mother, shout knowledge in my, in, in my house from my grandmothers. My, my grandmother had nine children, mm. you know, um, my, my, her father uh, killed a man, went to prison. I come from a, a community of people who would not fit. Hmm. These were not elite rich people. You know, they were born during Jamaica's colonial era. We got independence in 1962. So they have a very complicated relationship to the British, as all Jamaicans do. Um, so I want to shout out, I want to give a shout out to those people first, because I think that who impacts your thinking from your earliest these are those people, right? Like right. the people who you who you spend your most time, your chat, you know, the questions you ask, 
the things you watch on TV, you know, all those things are... Yeah, they were probably asking some how questions, too. Yeah. <laughs> how you met this enemy, how you met that enemy, right? So mm-hmm. I, want, I wanted us hold those people first. And then, of course, like, the going to going to college, when I left for college in the U.S., my big mentor was Susan Sanchez-Casal, a Puerto Rican woman. Well, she was my advisor who was really, like, transformative when I had just come to the U.S. And so I didn't know anything <laughs> like about, I didn't know anything about the U.S., like, you know. And then, um, so she was really instrumental. And then the other person who was a big mentor to me when I was there was Chandra Mahanti. Her, she's most known for her essay on the Western eyes, which is really a critique of white feminism, U.S. Western feminism and the way in which people include myself, you know, who come from third world countries, how we are presumed to be more oppressed than our sisters living in in the West, in Europe and in, in the US. And and so she really, she was like really instrumental, like my kind of like mm. <laughs> moment <laughs> of, of understanding. Because yeah. femi- feminism was, a you know, was like a very white mm-hmm. American thing. Mm-hmm. It had a kind of imperial connotation. You look at the history of the US invading different countries there's always some discourse of we white people are going to go and save those poor brown women brown black women from their crazy horrible black and brown men you know like so having having a space to reimagine myself was really important and then now the people that I like to read, and then I mean these are like the two never black girls, Audrey Lord, I mean <laughs> you know, like the, the names that if you the go to somebody's five, house yeah. and it's not there's no Audrey Lord on the bookshelf, you should leave the house immediately. <laughs> That's not somebody you want to be friends with. I mean, so you know, of course no, but seriously, like Audrey Lord, Michael Manley's book was really important to me. Uh Politics of Change. So it was, no, at the time, I'm starting from when I was like, I'm thinking about when I was 17. So it was mm. Audre Lorde, it was Michael Manley. Um, what was 17-year-old you listening to? Music-wise, yeah, I was yeah. listening to a lot of Barry Hammond. Okay. That was when I had just left Jamaica to come to right. the U.S. So I you're was holding on to something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, no, but so it was Audre Lorde. Bell hooks. Um, my yeah, list yeah. is very long, yeah. so yeah. I feel like your bookshelf is full. Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna have you're gonna have to be patient with me. <laughs> Stuart Hall, mm-hmm. me, can you not read Stuart Hall? Marcus Garvey. See, I don't like him as much, but but you <laughs> but should read him. You did, yeah. But you should read Mar- Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X. I don't mm-hmm. like them that much, but you should read them. Mm-hmm. You should know them. You should, you know, like. Yeah. But I mean, they're they're on my they're on my bookshelf. Is it more than just like? Patriarchy. It's, patri- it's patriarchy. Right. It's patriarchy. It's patriarchy. Yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not anything else. It's not. I don't see the value of the work. It's just patriarch, black male patriarchy. Yeah, yeah, and but you should read them. You should yeah, know yeah, them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Malcolm's patriarchy surprised me. It. Marcus Garvey. That kind of like makes sense. That. But like the way that that gets erased in discussing Malcolm, like in the autobiography itself, there's some like passages of like yeah, just yeah. hating women basically. Like, yeah. 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 So outside of more like intellectual scholarly literature based work is there work on the ground that really has inspired or shaped you yeah um so i try to do as much work as i can with local uh queer activism in jamaica um just because well for multiple reasons i always feel like you should do work i have the i have the privilege of being able to come and go as i please in jamaica Mm -hmm. and so being able to be visible in ways that other people might not be willing to be visible right and i don't say i'm not saying that people are not able to be visible this is a very big misconception because it's willing or where it can you can be strategically Mm -hmm. visible Mm -hmm. 
right. in your queerness. What has been really inspiring for me in the last, I would say, five years has been going home and seeing the ways in which activism around queerness and women's rights has just like exploded. So the mm-hmm. big thing as one of my really closest, dearest friends in Jamaica, uh, Nish, he just founded the first trans um, organization called Trans Wave. Mm-hmm. Please, any listener listening, go and like Trans Wave's page, follow Trans Wave Jamaica on Twitter. The work that they've done so far has been astonishing. Wow. Um, please support if you're listening. And then another really big group who I try to work with when I'm home or who, what my working with is like, how do I use being an intellectual to serve whatever they need me to serve? So right. they always, they'll invite me to like give talks, to facilitate workshops. One year um, we did like a sensitization with the police force um, surrounding violence against LBT women. Hmm. Um and so this group, We Change, is another really important group, JFLAG, um, which is a premier kind of most important major queer uh, group in Jamaica. In the last five years, we've, I, I would say that I've seen a real emergence of diverse um, groups working around human rights in Jamaica in ways that were not it wasn't to this level, mm-hmm. right? Let's put it that way. It's not that work was not happening. Work has been happening since independence, since Jamaica's gay freedom mm-hmm. movement founded by Larry Chang. Like, it's not a new thing. But it's more multidimensional. Yeah, it's, well, it's become, it's expanded in ways that have, I think are unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because when I grew up, you wouldn't see a gay person like openly advocating on TV. I know that's totally like people are out on mm-hmm. TV, but I don't, I also don't want to fall in the trap of assuming that visibility is liberation because right. it's not necessarily. As mm-hmm. discussed. Yeah. True, you know, but yeah, yeah. right, representation, right? right? Yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. Exact, right. exactly what you were saying, mm-hmm. exactly what you were saying. Yeah. So that's been really inspiring to me. When I go home, they organize Pride every year. Um, wow. I try to go. They have Pride Conference. They have Pride Sports Day. You know, I try to go to as many of the events, and I try to encourage a lot of like queer folk or um, people who are invested in a different vision to come and to support and work with local organizations. Because I think the problem in how queer liberation has been conceptualized it's so and too heavy U.S. oriented, and mm-hmm. while a lot of well intentioned. U.S. activists want to come and jump on and join the cause. What they end up doing is insisting on a liberation model that is based in a U.S. context that is not necessarily useful or applicable to the Caribbean. So suddenly the measure of liberation becomes if you have a pride event, mm-hmm. which that somebody mm-hmm. can go pride and then next week be kicked out of the community. It, right, that's, right. Not, that's not what liberation is. What does queer liberation look like for rural folk living in Jamaica. Like, yeah. your pride event is not going to bring them a job. Yeah, that's going to be like, decided by queer rural folk living in Jamaica. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right. right? So, or not, or trying to get laws that prevent people from putting kids out or, you know, like, mm-hmm. a, a kind of, there's a way in which too much of the work that happens around queer liberation or the sponsorship or the funders of these organizations in the Caribbean are grounded in a whole vision of queer liberation that is is so... Mm-hmm anathema to the context just like flat playbook of like let's parade our way to gay marriage exactly which is totally corporate you know it isn't true to the story of here even no it's not it's totally corporate here too you know but there's a way in which that just like I was talking earlier about how evangelicals export their thing Mm -hmm. it's a similar thing the soft power exactly like the the kind of pink triangle whatever you call them (laughs) 
Clement is yeah. it's like a nightmare. So I want I want I to don't really... call them, but it's <laughs> He's good to hear them acknowledged. <laughs> Someone's gotta be calling. Yeah. It's not like I don't call but I don't think it's a, I don't call that out, is what yeah. I'm saying. I don't No, yeah. but I just I just I'm like You just don't pick up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear what you're saying though. Right. Yeah, show talk to them. Um that work has been really, really rewarding for me. Keeps me like grounded. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, there's some there's something about sitting and working with people who do that kind of labor and sit, and loving people who do that kind of labor gives me a sense of of what where the world needs to where the world needs to be and what I want the world to be. You for know? sure, it's life bringer. So shout out to them, and then one more shout out. We're all for it. My best friend in Jamaica it does an advocate for it's an advocate for deaf and hard of hearing folks, mm-hmm. and um, she and her partner had. Uh, rallied and now deaf people in Jamaica can get driver's license mm. and that you know before they couldn't so this is like a big deal and I just want to shout them out for the work that they're doing around differently abled bodies mm-hmm. it's been amazing to see like tangible results yeah, from work a win yeah, yeah like yeah. tangible like yeah. it's like things the organizing is like a tangible thing that will come out of it so mm-hmm. shout out to Stephanie McIntyre Groves. Um, she has a company that's called PA. You can follow them on P A H, uh, bridging the gap or something like that. If you can follow them on Instagram, it, that it needs to be highlighted. Yeah. Um, not a lot of people are invested in work around um, disability rights mm-hmm. and stuff. So if if anyone listening, go ahead, like the page, uh, reach out, send money, anything that you can do to keep that work going. Be great. All right, I'm done. You're an excellent shout outer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a like top five shout outer we've had on this show. All right. That being said, let's get to this new game. Oh, great! This yes, is you're, a perfect moment. You for are it. qualified to start us off, which is Our, funny to think of a game that's actually a perfect transition. But we, we got this. All right. So I'm gonna give you the backstory for the listeners okay. as well, but also to know which seat you are in right now. This this is the a new era. Talk about epoch. That we got it going for about. 150 episodes, 120 episodes or so. Uh, we played this game that became the cornerstone of our work. <laughs> and it was it was rooted in accountability. And the people that we were holding accountable was R&B singers. Funny game, silly. Everybody would have to start beef with an R&B singer, right? Hilarious. People loved it. People would be caught off guard. People would say surprising things. And there was a lot of like the obvious of like the Chris Browns and the R. Kellys, which was at the core of where the game came from. Is like finding a silly way to lampoon the uh, contradiction of this like love based music from these really like violent, yeah, problematic people. people. Uh, and so then, you know, Surviving R. Kelly happened. And then there was like work. We also, it was there, there was like R. Kelly silence for a little second. So we were trying to like boost like, that up. Hey guys. Yeah. What the, f- what, yo, he's still just. <laughs> hey, what is he? He's in jail now, right? Like I'm not. Yeah, like, I'm not yeah. He hasn't been like sentenced, but it's pretty much over. With. The woman who bonded him out. Just trying to get our money back. <laughs> but <laughs> like, but, it, but now he has back. like multiple cases. That why why is she trying to get our money back? Because he got indicted for something else. So. And so she thought that if she bonded, you know, Bond, you put get the money, right you show up, you get it back, and she's just not going to get her money back. Yeah, the I'm scammer sweet. continues. Anyway, <laughs> I'm so giving you the long version. It was so, like no one was talking about R. Kelly, so we were talking about <laughs> R. Kelly. And then everyone was talking about R. Kelly, and, we were and like, then it became inappropriate to bring humor into something when there was like real work and survivors were leading it, right? So we thought it was a good idea to like put that game to rest. And as time moved on, we we retired it. But the same spirit, beef as a tool of accountability, and a sect of the world that has run amok, and this one is a little transcendent. New game. Brrr. Beef with the 20th century. 
be for the 20th century. <laughs> it's ex- expansive as anything, any person, any event, any piece, any, anything, anything 20th century. The 20th century ran amok. <laughs> so, so you get to pick anything in the 20th century from 1900 to 1999 to start beef with beef with the 20th century first time up danielle roper what do you got i want to start beef with the u.s for overthrowing salvador allende in chile because it is 73 yeah it mm-hmm. just like and installing pinochet and all of the kind of dictate the kind of dominoes that fell historically in the region that's my beef if i could punch the us in the throat mm-hmm. and henry henry kissinger mm. if if i could henry kissinger we actually yeah if if if, oh, if the 20th century <laughs> if the 20th century could have canceled him uh, <laughs> that's a good moment for that, cancel culture that yeah. if cancel culture had if <laughs> if that could have happened if somebody in school had led him to a different career i don't know mm-hmm. something else mm-hmm. it just like what it did to the americas what it did to the left Mm-hmm. Yeah. in the Americas, right? What it installed and the fact that I don't think Chile has ever gone back to where it was before, mm-hmm. right? No, it's the kind privatized of, everything. Yeah, the loss of like the social network, the, what what it did. Mm-hmm. There are moments much earlier than that, like I could talk about, you know, the overthrow of Arbenz that took place in Guatemala in the 1940s. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there are things that happened. We could talk about... Um, There's going to be a lot of overthrows on this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it goes on and on. But for me, like that's... Throwbacks. That's a moment, that's one. I have beef with the U.S. for... That's you know, a great That's yeah, a great beef. That's a great beef. Yeah, if you have more to add, you could throw it in. Yeah, I mean, that, beef sufficient. with the U.S. for um, putting in the CIA, destabilizing um, Jamaica, yeah. and, and and having, you know, Edward Siago emerges. He was a darling of, of you know, Reagan. I'm pissed with the U.S. for Grenada, invading yeah. Grenada. Like, for me, I guess I would say my beef with the 20th century is the story of the U.S. just disrupting any kind of leftist project yeah yeah and all those things had ripple effects the murder of walter rodney all the things that came after that yeah that's how you start a new game Uh, right there great walter rodney shout out we have to make a list we're gonna like oh no we're we're gonna you know we're gonna make we're gonna make a timeline (laughs) yeah we're gonna keep it's gonna be an interactive timeline (laughs) i like that (laughs) people the 20th century people the 20th century (laughs) fantastic you got to inaugurate it congratulations thank you it's such a special moment All right, we're going to get out of here. Where can the people find you in ways that you want to be found? Wow, that's a good question. My email is public, so email me. I, <laughs> you know, I, I was just, I gave a lecture somewhere the other day and students or people that heard it emailed me. So go on the internet, find my email, and I'll answer you. They, would, people would, are always uh, surprised yeah. that I answer, but I actually will answer if you email me. I would love me. if email correspondence came out of this show. I'm not going to do it. I would, I would love <laughs> it. So please email me, or you can follow me on, like, uh, what do I use now? Twitter, you can try and follow me there. I don't, actually, You're I don't private. Think, yeah, I'm private. That's true. I don't, you can request to follow you. Yeah, I just don't, I don't, I don't really like use it. I don't really yeah, use yeah. it. But you can. I mean, I'll, I don't free. post. Yeah, I don't, I don't post often. So if you want to talk to me, I guess I'm not the best person to follow. And somebody that you should write an email to, and I'll I'll yeah, respond back. back. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, we're at Ergo Radio. Damon underscore F. I'm at Ergo Kiss, and we'll be back next week with another person reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Thank you. Hey, Dame. What's up, Kiss? I want you to meet my friend Miriam here. Hey, Miriam. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Miriam is my oldest friend in the world. The whole world. And she is a devoted podcast listener. Are you? I am. Oh, well, that's love. I don't even just, I don't mean our podcast. I just mean podcasts in general. Okay. I love podcasts. 
how, how do you usually find your podcast? What do you listen to them on? <sighs> the iTunes mm. app. Yeah, I know. Very basic. You're not thrilled with it? <sighs> it isn't the best. Well, the good news is we actually have a recommendation for you. Oh, yeah? Well, Ergo is sponsored by Overcast. It's an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Man, it's for the people. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it free in the app store where you get all the other things. That yeah. You, you going to check it out? Sounds amazing. Cool. We won you over. Look how effective this ad is. <sighs> yeah. Pay, pay us more money, folks. <laughs> that's that's advertising in action. You see? Works. <laughs> see, that's how good we are at selling We're things. doing this. Hey, yo, Harold, hit me up, man. I am an advocate and I can market your stuff because look how great we just marketed Overcast. We just gave an ad for them and an ad for us. I think it's time to get the fuck out of here. Let's do it.